Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Cool Zone Media. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's me today, James, and I'm joined by Bedavan from the YPJ Information Office. And we're going to discuss today uh, Rojava and uh, like, chiefly the, the Turkish bombing campaign against it, which has been happening in the last few weeks and the last few months and, and the last few years. So we wanted to set that in context for you and, and everyone's attention has been very much focused on other conflicts, but that doesn't mean that this one isn't important and uh, it's one that obviously listeners will be familiar with. So we wanted to bring you an update on that. Welcome, Berivan. Hello, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Okay, I'm very happy to be here today. Good. Let's start by, I think, just in case people need a refresher or they, they haven't listened to some of the other stuff, talk about what's happening in Brojava and, and why, they, I guess, why it's important and why it's unique and, and what makes it special. Okay, so actually right now in Rojava, for more than uh, 10 years, there's a revolution uh, happening. I think most people heard that, for example, in 2011 and so on, there was like something called the Arab Spring. But actually in the same time, in this region in North and East Syria, actually also called like in the Northern Eastern part of Syria, there's a region called uh, Rojava. Uh, which is like a big part Kurdish population. There's also Christian population, like Assyrian, Armenian population, and also Arab uh, population. Like it's a very like colorful region, you can say. So in this region, 2011, in this time, and then 2012, a revolution uh, started, uh, which is actually based on a long-term um, struggle of the Kurdish movement and its experiences. And the revolution was uh, like mostly based on the idea to gain uh, democratic autonomy and to gain like democratic self-administration. Why? Mm -hmm. uh, because like the Syrian regime on the one hand was like very oppressive uh, towards uh, Kurdish people, and on the other hand, like it was like an authoritarian 
authoritarian uh, regime, so there was like this uh, wish to create uh, something different, uh, which was actually created here in the region in uh, Rojava. Yeah. So I think this we can say first, like what happened was that the revolution started and until today it's uh, continuing, like it's a very uh, like basic change of people's life, we can say that happened here. Like yeah. there's democratic administration in all areas of life and also like for example a great deal of uh, women's organization uh, to achieve also women's freedom. So uh, this revolution is like based on these principles of democratic self-administration of uh, women's freedom and also of ecology. Yeah. Perhaps you can explain to people who aren't familiar that a little bit more about the women's revolution because I think that is something that, that's extremely unique and uh, that, that people might not have, like, other, if they've heard of it, perhaps they haven't really, you know, I think the mainstream press doesn't cover it particularly well. So if you could explain, like, maybe something about the co-chair system or the, the relationship between yourselves and the Yepige and, and how that works. Yeah, so actually I was uh, just starting, like, speaking about, the, uh, like, when the revolution was happening. So from the <laughs> beginning on, like, women also took place in it. <laughs> like which was already the case in the Kurdish freedom movement in general, like that woman was uh, like equally were equally taking part in it, and uh, also uh, always founded their own organizations, like um, not like a substitute to a general organization or something like this, but actually like their own organization that at the same time uh, cooperate with the general organization. So there was already this principle of women's autonomy. So this was also adopted in uh, Rojava, so in all areas, which also includes like uh, political areas, areas of daily life, but also military field, uh, women organized. Uh, so actually in uh, the beginning of the revolution, there were like the society's uh, kind of self-defense forces uh, building up. And uh, in the beginning, there were already women in it. And uh, then there was uh, also the foundation of uh, YPG, like the People's Defense Forces. But uh, after this, also the YPG, the Women's Protection Units, were founded. Uh, so actually, it's like a fully uh, autonomous uh, women's uh, unit uh, that take care of uh, defending the homeland on the one hand, but on the other hand, also made like a great uh, deal of change in the society in the daily life of women because in a region that was before like uh, maybe to some deal like feudal or like uh, because of the authoritarian state like there was no protection for women's rights or something uh, like this mm -hmm. uh, and for example there was like this traditions of marrying uh, women in a young age or something like this so yep. this was actually changed by this woman's revolution. Like the everyday life uh, of women was uh, changed and is still changing. Like it's still a struggle because it means uh, changing the society in general. Yeah. Uh, so there's like in every area of life today, there's like an autonomous women's organization in uh, Rojava existing, which makes it maybe the most like profound uh, women's revolution that until now. Uh, is happening, I think. So it's like a really important example, I think, for women everywhere in the world. Yeah, very much so. And it, it is a genuinely profound change, having spent a little bit of time there earlier this year. Um, but it, it, it's very, 
notable as you spent a lot of time in that part of the world, how different things are. And then perhaps we should talk about uh, the the battle against uh, the so-called Islamic State or Daesh or ISIS or whatever you want to call it and the role that um, the YPG, YPJ and SDF played in that. Um, can you explain a little about, about that fight and, and the, the fighting that happened and also like the tremendous number of people who, who died fighting or were martyred in, in, in the language that is used by the revolution about them? So like uh, uh, in general, I think um, everyone in the world first uh, listened to the name of the YPJ, the Women's Protection Units, in, the, in relationship to ISIS. Uh, but actually, from the beginning on, uh, they fought like against this kind of, uh, let's say, like different, like fundamentalist or mercenary groups that were uh, existing uh, in the region. And uh, when ISIS was coming up, uh, like the biggest or most uh, known battle uh, that actually the world for the first time really saw was uh, the battle for Kobani, where, for example. Uh, the YPJ uh, was like very, very limited possibilities and the YPJ uh, fought uh, against uh, uh, ISIS and actually uh, succeeded like to defeat ISIS and to defend the city of Kobani, which was kind of like a breaking point where things started to turn around. Or we have also have the point where, uh, for example, Shanghai was attacked, which is like in South Kurdistan, it's not like in the Iraq region, it's not uh, even the same region, but uh, the YPJ also played like a role in opening a, a corridor for uh, the people who tried to flee for the Yazidi people, who like are people who have uh, faced like many genocides in history. And uh, in order to save them from the genocide of ISIS, uh, the YPJ opened a, a corridor to uh, help them to flee. So, and there are like uh, many uh, stories, or like in the end, the liberation of uh, the city of Raqqa, uh, which was kind of known like as the center of uh, ISIS, which uh, also we can say like uh, the women's force played like a pioneer or vanguard uh, role in this. So, there are many examples where we can say like how deciding, uh, for example, and the struggle of the YPJ was for the defeat uh, of ISIS. And I think, uh, on the other hand, we also have to say that ISIS is not completely defeated because it's seeing like some uh, support from outside uh, structures like from Turkey. So there are still some like uh, cells or, for example, uh, there are a lot of deta detainees like before that was happening at uh, try to break out from the detention centers in 2022. Uh, so it's not like it's completely uh, vanished from the earth, but the actual defeat mm -hmm. uh, was like reached by the YPJ and the uh, YPJ force. Uh, yeah, I think it's very important to talk like you spoke about those like uh, incarcerated ICE, former ISIS fighters, right? And, and their attempt to break out. I think that's maybe a good chance for us to talk about like some other former ISIS fighters. Uh, and, and like starting in, uh, I think it was called Turkey called it Operation Peace Spring. I think right, like the uh, these these Turkish incursions into uh, into into Rojava and in, into like uh, and and into uh, like Syrian territory. Can you explain a little bit about like how? 
I guess this will get us to the modern day and, and the bombing, but like, perhaps you can explain how this started. Obviously, Turkey has been opposed to the Kurdish freedom movement since its inception, uh, right, since the very beginning in, in the like, last century. But um, perhaps you could explain like this series of ongoing Turkish aggressions uh, against what's happening in Rojava now and like how that began and how that's manifested itself uh, over the years. So yeah, it's like uh, after um, ISIS was defeated to uh, some degree, actually Turkey for itself started occupation attacks. Uh, like in uh, 2018-19 and uh, started uh, the occupation was uh, first against Afrin and then against Serikanir and uh, Girisri, which are all like very important regions of Rojava that are like directly next to the Turkish border, like you see Rojava is uh, like directly um, in between Syria and uh, Turkey, like next to the Turkish border. So mm -hmm. uh, they directly attacked these uh, cities next to the border, which actually most of Rojava cities are directly next to the border. Yeah. Uh, like right next and uh, they occupied them. Yeah, I think that's important to understand like a little bit. Because yes, uh, so. actually there are Turkish plans to occup occupy like uh, um, the region along the border, not only the cities that they occupied until now, with a very, very violent war, uh, with using aircraft and so on. Like also in the last years, uh, Turkey very much invested into uh, drone technology and so on. And they used also ch uh, chemical weapons, like in very famous in 2019, the video of a young child named Mohammed went around the world that like uh, was like uh, burned by phosphorus mm -hmm. uh, in Serikania in the occupation attack. So like actually it's a, like a war that is mostly fought also with the most like dirty yeah. Uh, methods that Turkey is waging on the region. And after this, like, uh, we can say, like, after Serkani was uh, occupied, uh, Turkey actually continued uh, to attack uh, with a war that you cannot say, like, at this time it starts and then this time it ends. It's more like continuous mm -hmm. attacks. So, on the one hand, like, uh, some areas are always uh, getting bombed in the last years. Like, for example, like with artillery shelling and so on, like uh, Sherba next to Afrin or uh, Ein Isa or Tilchemel. So like the areas that are close to the occupied uh, areas where now Turkey and mercenary forces uh, are stationed, they constantly attack more or less the regions. Mm -hmm. But also with the drone war. Like the first, I think, very like... Uh, clear example of what uh, was the Turkish strategy like in the last years uh, was on the 23rd uh, June 2020 uh, when Turkey killed uh, three uh, women of uh, Congress, the women's movement, like the civil women's movement uh, in Kobani in the village uh, which were all like two of them were like in the leadership of the civil women's movement and one was just like a member and they were sitting in the garden and they were talking and uh, at this time like a Turkish drone uh, st uh, strike and they all uh, lost their lives so like a lot of these kinds of attacks happened after this like against uh, and, like let's say like 
civil leaders of society, like politicians, uh, normal people also, like uh, on the 25th of December, actually also yeah. uh, on Christmas in 2021, uh, five, uh, five children, yeah. like young people, like uh, youth from the youth movement, uh, were killed uh, in Kobani also. Yeah. Like uh, they are just when they were sitting in the garden, like members of the youth center, like a Turkish stone stuck, three of them like uh, young girls, and uh, this continued. Or also we can say like uh, leaders of, uh, for example, YPJ also, uh, like on uh, the twenty second of uh, July last year, there was a conference happening for celebrating 10 years of women's revolution in Rojava mm -hmm. and just on the same day Turkey targeted the car uh, of the uh, YPJ members one of them was Gian uh, Toldan yeah. who also spoke on the same day on the conference so actually it's quite clear what Turkey actually wants they want to like destroy uh, the revolution that's happening in Rojava like the women's revolution <laughs> and in general, like this change that is happening, they want to create like the fear to stay away, to obey to the Turkish occupation forces. Uh, and they're using a lot of violence, like also in the occupied areas, like the people are right now living there, they cannot speak their language. They have to fear. Sometimes they cannot close the uh, house doors. Sometimes people get uh, like abducted. Like without anyone knowing why or where they go, will they go to the prison? Will they be in a prison or will they be tortured or yeah, like a very kind of uh, oppressive regime? Yeah. Uh, now in the occupied uh, areas. Yeah, and those are people who like I've met uh, when when they come here, right? People who have lost. Like I spoke to a guy, a mayor, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, his his father had been killed, his uncle had been killed, uh, and like. He was like, "What should I do? Should I should I wait to be like the last person in my family, and, and then who gets killed?" Or, or like, it, it's it's very the conditions for those people in the the Turkish occupied parts of northern Kurdistan are very very difficult and oppressive. And I think like just to build off what you said, like it's important that people realize that these killings of especially like people in the women's revolution, but but also you know uh, people in. Uh, in, in the Rojava revolution more generally, it's not, um, drone strikes are extremely targeted, right? Like they can you know, follow a car from an event and strike it. Uh, like it's these kind of, these things are not, it's not like it's not like artillery or mortars. It's not like you're sending it into an area. Like they're extremely targeted to an individual or a group of individuals rather than, you know, a random attack so like this is a, a distinct choice that's being made when you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year 100,000 mile limited warranty you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible visit your local kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner kia movement that inspires Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad. 
the dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's talk about the most recent bombings because I think there were some particularly egregious ones, even by uh, the standards of, um, of of this this campaign, which has been pretty egregious from the beginning. But um, December, ar- around the week of Christmas this year, um, just to give people a time sort of period, there was a bombings of a, if I'm not wrong, a printing press, a dialysis facility. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, there was there was also another hos like not hospital like uh, as a big hospital. Let's say like a medical point also in Kobani, where doctors without borders. I think it's like kind of a known and they were also working there. Yeah. And the oxygen center also. So like medical places, there were like normal factories of uh, of food production. Uh, like you said, the printing house. There were many places like this, like uh, of daily infrastructure. Uh, that were targeted like before already in October infrastructure was targeted and also last year there was attack like this and yeah. every time at least 10 civilians got killed like in all of these attacks so now I think the overall number just of these three waves of attacks is already like 31 killed uh, civilians so like maybe drone strikes are very targeted but it's not like uh, Turkey doesn't want to kill civilians yes. or takes care not to kill civilians like already in the attacks of uh, last year, there was uh, examples of double tap attacks, for example, which are actually illegal. Uh, so I think it's very important to say, like also this uh, targeting of medical points, of medical yeah. infrastructure, that what Turkey is doing is not according to international law. Like the, that's uh, not the case. 
<laughs> like Turkey is kind of acting like, however it wants, targeting uh, civilians, creating like fear and also like uh, in a region that is already poor, Yani, you have to say, like the possibilities that have been created, like uh, like for daily needs and so on, for supplies of electricity, uh, of like heating uh, fuels and so on for your house yeah, uh, yeah they are very affected like this right now so like in general there's like a big shortcoming of everything right now in Rojava and right. this because of Turkey's attacks so this is actually affecting everyone and on the other hand Turkey tried to create like this fear like there's just some wave of attack and just targeting everywhere so uh, they want to displace actually the population mm -hmm. and also to commit like uh, the politics of the Turkish state, especially against Kurdish people and also against uh, Christians, is very much like potentially like genocidal politics. Like uh, it's not uh, not like a limited attack or something like this. Like uh, we don't think so. Yeah, no, it's not. Uh, and like you said, they're, they're very much unafraid of, of killing civilians in the process. Like I spoke to uh, a mother whose 15 year old son was killed in a drone strike. Um, I don't think it's very hard to make an argument that a fifteen-year-old son was doing anything apart from being a fifteen-year-old kid. You know, um, it's not like this person is a legitimate military target. It's a kid who played goalkeeper on his local football team. Uh, and these double tap attacks, like if people aren't familiar with a double tap attack, it's when a, an attack happens, people go to the site of the attack to render aid, right? An ambulance or, or perhaps just bystanders rendering aid or other military personnel rendering aid, and then a second attack happens. At, at the same place to to then attack the people who are rendering aid. So uh, you spoke a little bit about like how they're trying to attack the whole project and not just individuals. I wonder like the um, the drone strikes do have like a they change the way things have to be done, right? Like like it, it's it's it, things become unsafe. Like anywhere you can see the sky, right? Like having a large gathering, or, or certainly for people who are of more like higher status, um, it, it's uh, it, it's dangerous for them to be out and about, right? Is is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, on some level, for sure, it's dangerous. But on the other hand, you cannot always be afraid. Like that's like a really <laughs> yeah. the reality. Like, for example, now, because these places were targeted, for example, the infrastructure that you need for your life, mm -hmm. people actually started to stand, like, next to the electricity center to say, like, if we are all here, then they cannot target it. Oh, wow. Which, for sure, is dangerous if you see, like, the... Um, yeah, they can. <laughs> they, the uh, yeah, because they've killed a lot of civilians, as you say. That's a very brave yeah. thing to do. Yes. Yeah, and like again, I think I think maybe we should explain actually is that it gets very cold in this part of the world in the winter because perhaps people will associate uh, this part of the world with like the heat and uh, hot, hot hot summers. But like you you have very cold winters, especially in the mountains, right? Yeah, I mean Rojava, it's like all more or less flat, so it's like it's not so cold, but still it gets like under zero degrees. So mm -hmm. like. For sure, you need, still need like your house to be warm and so on, like just to take care of basic needs. You need your car to drive somewhere, maybe sometimes at least like 
some people need it for their work or like there's just a lot of basic needs that don't work if uh, if all the infrastructure gets destroyed. Yeah, yeah. And I believe uh, if I'm right in, in saying this, the one person already passed away because they couldn't get dialysis at, at the dialysis center that was bombed. Is that right? Yes. So uh, they said that one passed away afterwards. They bought like a like emergency wise dialysis machine. Yeah. Which I think is very good for the sick people. But I'm not sure because also if you don't have like a substitute, if something happens, like only one machine, I'm not sure like how much it will actually take care of the needs of the people. Because I said it was like 70 or 80 sick people who were going to the center. So it's not mm -hmm. few. Yeah. And like, I don't think, yeah, I mean, it's certainly not as good as having a proper center, right? Like, and there's no reason. That's, that's, there's no world in which a dialysis center is a, is a legitimate target um, or, yeah. or a printing press, right? Like, I think that, that maybe points to what you were saying. Like, if you're printing books about something, sharing knowledge about something, um, and like, perhaps one thing, I think you were saying, it, is it right that it printed textbooks? I think it was like also printing textbooks. Okay. Like, in it was printing everything. So it's also printing textbooks, yes. Like, yeah. for schools, also, it was printing textbooks. Yeah, and we should point out that, like, you know, I, I speak to Kurdish people almost every day when I'm at the border, and they, many of them don't read and write in Kurdish, because in Turkey, that's not taught in schools, right? They don't have a chance to learn. Uh, and, and so, like, having those textbooks, having that knowledge, like, uh, lots, of my, lots of my friends were saying that, like, the children, because, the ch because our, folks who went to school before the revolution went to school in Arabic. So like the children are the ones who have like the formal education in Kurdish, you know, and they're, they're building a, rev uh, a generation that like speaks Kurdish and reads and writes Kurdish as their first language. And so like an attempt to destroy that isn't just destroying the factory, right? Is that fair to say that it's also destroying like that goal of the revolution and more broadly like that attempt to uh, like to have that education in Kurdish and let children speak their own language in school? Yes, I mean, this is also part of like assimilation politics to deny pe uh, people their own language, which actually like the Syrian regime also did, like they only yes. taught in Arabic. And now, for example, the system of the self-administration allows everyone to learn in different languages. Like now there's Arabic, there's Kurdish, and even in the very last times I heard that there will also be opened uh, Assyrian again, which is yeah. actually really important because it's like a language that is like very, um, like most Assyrian people right now speak and write uh, Arabic, so it could be really important also. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's, I think it's really important to point out for people who aren't aware, and often in the US media, like uh, Roger is, is reported as like Kurdish and like a Kurdish area, but it, it may have a majority of Kurds in, in some cities, but like, yeah, there are Assyrian people, there are Arab people, there are Armenian people. And, and like they have that same autonomy, right? To educate in their own language and to uh, to like organize in their own communities. Yes, that's what the idea is all about. And I think actually, like uh, we saw this in the last time, there was kind of trying to create this image of like Kurds against Arabs, like yes. on the outside in the international media, which is absolutely not true. Like the SDF itself is like a majorly Arabic force. It's not majorly. Kurdish, like if you see in numbers, I think at least so. Yeah. 
it's like very equal. Like everyone who plays a role in it and who wants to participate can participate and everyone has a like autonomy also to organize inside of their own society or may it be religion or in which sense like also Yazidi people like yep. Kurdish people who are of Yazidi religion uh, they also have their own organization here in, uh, in Rojava so yeah. that's very important and their own movement in, uh, in their own area right like the Yerbeshe in uh that that part of Iraq, like that's um, like I guess an allied movement. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I yeah. mean it very much like follows the same idea and the same concept as Rojava. Uh, yes, and uh, yeah, I've also spoken to Azili people uh, who have come to the United States recently, and like yeah, they uh, under the uh, under ISIS, like they had an absolutely uh, like inhumane and terrible conditions, and. Uh, if it wasn't for uh, the Yefege, then uh, they like they wouldn't be they 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 you know they 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 the beginning of the uh, their liberation I guess came from the Yefege. Um something we'll maybe talk about uh, another time because it's a long story. I wonder, yeah, like obviously this isn't something that has been in the news as much because people have been so focused on Palestine. I wonder if it's worth discussing, like the Turkish state's completely like, uh, like two-faced approach, right? Like on one hand, they're saying uh, we have to, um, like, yeah, it's unacceptable for the bombing of civilians in Palestine, and like this is completely wrong. And then on the other hand, they're they're doing the same thing, right? Like just on on, on their other border. Yeah. So I think we have to anyway say like Turkey is not uh, doing anything good for the Palestinian people. Turkey is leading Hamas to such an attack, like is supporting Hamas and uh, this like very violent uh, attacks that they made, which then was like the preset for the war of Israel and international forces against the Palestinian people. So actually, who is like suffering from all of this is like the normal people. This, uh, like which is true for Israel and uh, Palestine. So actually, we have to say like uh, what Turkey is doing is against the people. Like it's also against the Palestinian people. And here, like they have criticized so clearly. For example, uh, Israel saying like saying Israel is making occupation politics and so on. Uh, still, Turkey also has ties with Israel. This we also have to say, but. Uh, like they are themselves occupying uh, parts of Rojava uh, mm -hmm. in the shadow of these attacks that like all the attention of the world was going uh, into uh, this region. Mm -hmm. uh, they attacked uh, Rojava, uh, like also calculating that maybe people will not so much uh, look to Rojava right now. If, like at mm -hmm. the same time, there's like another huge war going on in the Middle East. Yeah. And uh, they are making like very clearly like um, politics of occupation in Afrin and Sirkani and yeah. also of yeah. demographic change. So they are like displacing people and placing other people. Yeah. So that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, well, displacing whom and, and placing whom, because I think that's important when we talk about uh, like that, that population and demographic change. Like, because it, there's a, it, it's not they're not just displacing people randomly and replacing them randomly, right? Yeah. So actually, the people that are targeted the most are like the 
uh, Kurdish people in the areas or other people that are like not uh, aligned to uh, the Turkish state and then who they place like uh, mostly were like uh, you see that all these mercenary forces that are actually aligned to Turkey or like uh, outside forces already like they are like um, they are not ISIS but they are a little bit similar to it they are like mercenary groups that are like more or less, like, uh, what, what road they go, it's like clarified from outside uh, forces. So uh, they are aligned to Turkey. And uh, from these people, for example, their families were placed in the region on the one hand. On the other hand, there were even examples where uh, Turkey started to place some uh, Palestinian people also uh, in this region. Yes. Or like, different, like they just who they think they can align to uh, Turkey as a state and bring under their control, they were placing in these areas that say it like this, like to uh, be able actually with what is a part of Rojava, a part of Syria, uh, to occupy it long term, like to make this last. It's not like a short term plan, like they want to stay uh, mm -hmm. in this area if it's not prevented, if it's not liberated again. Yeah, yeah. And I think like, Again, like people, I think have become more aware in recent months. People are, are uh, becoming educated on the situation in Palestine, settlements, and uh, it, it's not the fault of the people of Palestine that they're being like uh, forced to be driven off their ancestral homelands. But like, what it does mean is that like they could be mobilized by someone like Turkey, right, to just do an occupation, to uh, to do, a, I guess, a demographic transfer somewhere else, and uh, like that's not a that's not like a desirable outcome. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. Woo! 
As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So we spoke a little bit about like this like ongoing hostility, right? And it, it can seem uh, for people out, like I think people only hear about Rojava in, in negative, uh, not negative terms is the wrong thing, but like they only, it only ever enters the American press these days when something happens, right? Either an ISIS attack, something at one of the, the camp, like a hull or a rodge, right? But like also things are continuing to progress, right? Uh, it's not just a place that is embattled and fighting to survive. Like, I know recently a new social contract was passed, for instance. So maybe you could explain a little bit about the progress that's still being made despite um, this this ongoing like air war, drone war, and land war. Yeah. So actually, um, I think here in Rojava we always followed this philosophy that we are not like sitting here and saying, "Oh, war will come towards us," or like it will not be. Like we are very much hopeful, and we are always working to develop. Like uh, even if these things are happening, these attacks are happening, the revolution very, very much developed and the society changed a lot uh, already. A lot of institutions have been built up that before were not existing and so on. And as an outcome also of this, the new social contract was formed, which actually is like a very democratic process. Like, let's say if uh, state force, for example, has the constitution, the state-less uh, self-administration has a social contract, which actually is made by the people because until it was made, there was years of discussion, like there were so many meetings, like all of the political representatives from the smallest to the biggest level, they were all part of uh, the uh, discussion and also the people themselves, they could take part in the discussion. So now uh, this is, for example, ensuring a lot of important decisions. And uh, now, like the struggle that is before us, like that we are facing now, is to implement the social contract, which is very important. It's also guaranteeing a lot of progress uh, for women. It's uh, guaranteeing a lot of progress for society. So I think still uh, now, like it's a task to uh, like see how how it can be implemented in all areas because mm-hmm. it's always like a very lively process. Like it always needs the daily struggle, the daily work, uh, creating like uh, everything from new. So there's a lot going on actually, we can say. Yeah, definitely. And uh, like, I definitely like, it doesn't, I think it's easy. Like, again, if we only report on the thing when bad things are happening, like to, to think that it's, only bad but there's a lot of like it, people are still hopeful i think and hopeful for creating and spreading like this better future for themselves and the children and, and for the region um which i think is it's really admirable 
One thing that I thought was really admirable is people will probably have seen it, and but like if if they don't like follow social media so much, the exchange of statements of solidarity between the KNDF, the Karendi National Defense Force Battalion Five, specifically in, in Myanmar, and uh, the YPG and YPJ in um, in Rojava, and and they've gone back and forth, right? But can you explain a little bit about? Obviously, I know that the situation in Myanmar is very complicated. I know I've spent years of my life learning about it, but um, can, can you explain like the importance of that solidarity and like um, also perhaps that like it's not it, it was a risk, right, for everyone to gather like this in 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 the middle of the drone war to make the statement. But can you I- explain like why that solidarity was something they felt was so important? Yeah, I think in in general it's very important to say like the revolution in Rojava, it's not only like a revolution for the people of Rojava itself. It has like a perspective more general like to strengthen uh, the friendship of uh, democratic movements anywhere in the world. So for sure there's a lot of uh, colors of movements, a lot of different situations in the world and some might uh, also like let's say feel this solidarity very strong because actually they are also like uh, in Myanmar like also uh, facing uh, for example a state system which is very much influenced by fascism like for example we are facing Turkey or like in general this kind of uh, oppression and trying uh, to liberate from it Mm -hmm. Uh, so actually we are always trying to have like this uh, exchange uh, in general in the world and to have like also to build like how let's say like quality uh, quality relationships, quality friendships uh, with all kinds of uh, democratic movements. Mm-hmm. Uh, for sure, every everyone is uh, acting on a different level and so on. But uh, this is like a big something really really important for us in general. And I mean like in in the Rojava revolution, there were also always people from the outside, for example, participating in it. So there was always kind of the spirit that this is like the uh, revolution for the world, like the Kurdish uh, movement in general has like this character, like an internationalist character. So it's not yes. something like, uh, let's say, like far from from us. Like uh, it's already something like very close to us to say like uh, we stand in solidarity also with other liberation movements. Yeah, I think it was very. It was. I know it's very much appreciated in Myanmar because lots, lots of people from there have reached out to tell me how how much they appreciated it. And like, I think some of them have been in the revolution for seventy years, right? Like, and and the world has not paid attention to them, so they really appreciated that. Um, yeah, that's that solidarity, and like, I know that the solidarity runs a lot deeper than statements. But like, we we will cover the 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 extent of that solidarity in another episode, because again, I think it, it 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 merits its own recording. I wonder, uh, Bedevan, what... Obviously, people will be listening, right? And I think a lot of people will be very supportive of the revolution in Rojava, and, and they want to help it and see it succeed, and certainly not to see... No one wants to see civilians dying in drone strikes, right? Um, no one wants to see anyone dying in drone strikes, but... How can they, if they are in the US or in Europe or uh, elsewhere in the world, but not in Rojava, um, how can they help? How can they support uh, the revolution through its like difficult 
through these difficult moments, right, when, when people don't have electricity to heat their homes in the winter and things? Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot of possibilities, like mm-hmm. uh, besides coming here, which also support, but uh, I mean, in general, like you have all of this, uh, uh, this possibilities, like from educating yourself, what is this revolution actually about, understanding it, from spreading its ideas, which is maybe the most important task. May it be like uh, sp- spreading knowledge about it, spreading knowledge also about the attacks that are happening, clarifying mm-hmm. what is happening and why it's happening, to read about political backgrounds, also of international politics, it's very important to understand it. And also you can always like uh, share, for example, let's say you have social media, let's say you're part of a political movement or something, you can discuss about it, you can inform yourself about it. You can make a presentation about it in your university. Like there are so many things that you can do. Mm-hmm. Like uh, you can read a book about it and make a book presentation. Like there's a million things a person uh, can do. Or as you are doing, you can connect to the Kurdish refugees or to the society, yeah. Kurdish people in the diaspora in general, like outside of Kurdistan, wherever you might be. Yeah. Uh, that's possibility also like you can organize solidarity also practical solidarity also like let's say like intellectual works like write a text share it discuss about it like maybe it's difficult in the beginning to understand some things or to gain like information but right now there's actually a lot of uh, information also available in english language i think yeah lots so it's very important. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you could read for about a year non-stop i think and still not not have read all of it. But are there books you've recommended a couple of books to me, which I think have been really good, and that I've shared with my friends in Myanmar, and I know that they've enjoyed. Are there any books you'd recommend to listeners? I mean, in general, like this revolution is based uh, on the thoughts of uh, Abdullah Öcalan. Mm-hmm. So it's, I think a good idea if you actually want to understand like the ideological basis of it about women's liberation about how democratic society can be organized. So actually there's like this book called of him, Sociology of Freedom. I think it's very important. It's a little bit like um, understandable, I think, for someone who comes maybe from academic or from a leftist or from a democratic background. I think they will read it. They will be able to understand it. But there are also many other books that are translated to English or like text. Uh, that are available or in general there are books about the bourgeois revolution from people for example coming from the outside uh, I have to think right now in English I'm sorry I know there are some also some in uh, different languages about the women's revolution mm-hmm. so I have to think which is available I think there's also like there's one called like the politics of freedom or something and there are some books that were published because there were like the diplomatic conferences in uh, most of them I think happening in Europe which mm-hmm. uh, afterwards there were like uh, uh, some like collections of yeah. uh, philosophical discussion uh, like uh, published so I think that's also very av- available but I'm sorry I have exact <laughs> yeah no there's a good book called revolution in rojava which was translated from german that um like i think it, it lays out like the how things happen it's a little bit um 
little bit dated now. I think it was published in like 2016. So, you know, things have changed over a few years, but I think that's a decent book for people who are interested as well that I know a lot of people have recommended. Yeah. And then I wonder, like, because this isn't being, uh, like, I know you made the point earlier about like the world was looking at Palestine. Like, I, When the attacks in Palestine happened, I was in, in Kamishlo, in, in Rojava, and, like, it's impossible for me to sell stories. Um, it's impossible for me to sell anything to like big news outlets. So they they simply like don't think American people can care about two parts of the world at once. I guess. I wonder where people can follow and get updates. Like, do it's a good uh, social media or news outlets that you would suggest for people who do want to keep in touch with what's happening. Yeah, I mean, we have like a Twitter, a Facebook page as YPJ Information on Documentation Office, like YPJ Information. Yeah. Uh, but uh, also there's like uh, other places like the Rojava Information Center, which is very much mm -hmm. like uh, like independently uh, accumulating like knowledge and sharing in a way that I think is understandable for everyone. Like there's also from the SDF forces a press center which just has like also the English uh, homepage is sharing like sometimes statements and concrete information. There's the internationalist commune of Rojava which is sharing in uh, English language mm -hmm. a lot of information on Twitter and uh, on their homepage. So there's actually a lot of sources if yeah. uh, you go and look for it that are very good I think also. Yes, and like on the ground people who can show you what's happening. Um, yeah, I think I think that's wonderful. But Ivan, is there anything else you'd like us to get to before we finish up? Anything else you, you want people to know? No, I think it's very important to say again that it's like very, very valuable for the revolution for people to take part in actions, to make their voice heard, to organize, to make the revolution known, to get it to know for themselves. And that it does actually make a very, very huge difference like the struggles that people everywhere in the world are making for the solution and that it needs it, that like, it's very like critical for the Rojava revolution that everywhere in the world it gets known and uh, gets uh, like solidarity. Mm -hmm. uh, that we see this as very meaningful. I think that's very important to understand. And uh, besides this, I don't know, I hope, uh, yes, that's it, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's really good to, to realize that like it's not a, it's not a, uh, it's you know it's, it's a very worthwhile thing to do just to increase people's awareness and, and solidarity. And um, thank you so much for your time. I know internet's not the easiest thing to come by where you are. So thank you so much, Bredivan, for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thank you also for talking about this topic. I was very happy to join. I think. Great. Thanks so much. Happen Year is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? 
Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.